0: The rich feed the poor
1: down there. I know rich no
0: more. Well, there we go, kicking
2: off the show with our familiar intro from Alvin Lee. Uh, Brent joined us right as that was playing, had him muted out, and like uh, uh, here he's with us, so that's good. Roger Sayles, your host. Our little weekly daily during the week, and then weekly with Brent get-together on Fridays, which is uh, anticipated by a lot of people, including him and I, and we kind of try and wrap up the week and take some of this craziness and tie it back to spiritual roots and avail ourselves of Brent's lifetime of study and knowledge and understanding and being able to attach some dots with lines and kind of stuff like that. That's what we do on the Radio Ranch, People's Patriot Networks, our platform. The uh, show is dated 11-8-19. I don't see any numerical significance particularly there except for the 11. Brent, how you doing? You're traveling today, buddy.
3: Yes, I am, and I've got my earbuds in, but they're not plugged in. Here we go. I just noticed. Now we're in. Is that, that all right?
2: You know, it even sounds better when you made that connection.
3: <laughs> okay. Well, I'm at the Red Pill Convention, Are and um, I'm not able to participate right now because we're doing this, but I'll – But the convection – last night, uh, Alan Keyes spoke.
2: Yeah. I remember him. Boy, he's an articulate guy. Yeah, I do. Do you know who his roommate was at college?
3: Barack Obama? I don't know. Who was this? William (laughs) Crystal. Well, I believe it. He he went to school, big-time Ivy Leaguer, Cornell, and Harvard, and all. And uh, I've never – no, I've met him once. I met him once back when I was in politics. He spoke at Decatur, Illinois, I remember, and we made a trip over there to – or up there to to take his temperature and see who he was. Yeah, the thing about Alan Key is I don't know how he, how he learned how to do it, but he's a communicator and he's really good at it. He is, that a, is a, he fun. is a
2: dynamite speaker from somebody I've done a lot of public speaking in the past. He is mm-hmm. very good. He's got some yeah, real god given talents here.
3: Yeah, and uh, of course, don't know what else he can do, but he can talk if that's worth anything. Of course, if you're in politics, that's an important thing to be able Mm -hmm. to do because especially the higher you get, you become more of a, uh, a figurehead and a person with a pulpit, a bully pulpit. And that's important then that you say the right words. Winston Churchill said there. I don't think Winston Churchill could do anything. He's probably completely in that. Well, matter of no. fact, I think he was, and so was his father.
2: No, there's you know, one fa- thing there's one thing huh. he excelled at drinking.
3: Yeah, he was good. Yeah, he started early in the morning from what I read and stayed in bed at least till noon and he'd start drinking in bed about eight or so, nine, and he'd drink and, and work and people bring him breakfast and yeah, after age sixty he he stayed pretty steady at it, smoking cigars. He had been stationed in Cuba when he was with the the horse regiment when he was young. he went all, His father wanted him to be an engineer. Well, his father uh, didn't do well in numbers either. That's what engineers do. His father was the one that was appointed head of the exchequer in Britain. That's the inland tax oh, revenue
2: people. Oh, really?
3: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, the Exchequer
2: if he was head of the Exchequer he was head of the treasury.
3: Mhm. Mhm. And tax collection of course. Yeah, yeah, of course. Just like the, the head of the treasury here is head of the IRS. Well at any rate um he's the one that said famously when he looked at all the rows of figures and all the decimal points and he said he said I understand all these numbers but what are all those dots between the numbers? <laughs> he didn't have a clue. <laughs> That's the way that people are. They're banking, too, by the way. They have so much money, they don't have to think about dots between numbers. They don't know how to do arithmetic. Who are we kidding? Well, at any rate, uh, Winston was like that, but he wanted Winston to be an engineer. He had bigger ideas. You know, you want your son to be what you aren't. Of course, his father had a terrible problem, too, and to put it in a nutshell, he died of syphilis. His father did. He was a parliamentarian, very uh, man, a very influential man, born with a silver spoon in his mouth. He wasn't royalty, but he was as close as royalty as you get, had all the privileges of royalty, as did Winston. He wasn't royalty either, but he was. He was. He was the only Winston Churchill was the only prime minister that stood out on the balcony of one of the palaces. I forget which one. I don't know. But, with the queen, or the king, rather and uh, waved the crowd at the end of World War II and shared the glory with the crown uh, because they wanted him to so bad. But Winston uh, was a figurehead. He excelled mm-hmm. and he spent his life m- trying to master nothing but words. That's all he ever did. He wrote massive volumes of books. Of course, when you write books, you learn how to talk because you will talk the way you have written. And if right. you write millions of words that and he knew that and that's why he did it he did understand that much and he focused so he became an encouragement to his people for whatever else we can say about him and all of the shenanigans he got into and all the people that were killed because of his lack of good judgment discernment and there were a lot and also his apparent uh uh affiliation with the one world order crowd for all of that he did encourage his own people to fight. The question is, should they have been fighting at all? Of course, I understand that, but the power of words are important, and so uh, I say Alan Keyes. He's a good communicator. I don't know what else he can do. He'd have been better than Barack Obama. Of Barack Obama, he ran against Barack Obama yes, yes. For, for U.S. Senate in Illinois, and uh, I think there's one hundred and two counties in that state. And uh, Key, Allen Key took nine, the Keys took nine of those counties. So that left about 93. And did I do my arithmetic right? About 93 for Brock, which included Cook County, which includes half the population of the blasted state. Sure. It said in Illinois, Roger, that on a clear day in Illinois, over half, just over half of the voters can see the Sears Tower in Chicago. If that tells you anything. Well, that's, of course, the same problem that California is having. Now there's a movement in California called new California and it's pretty massive and they're going like gangbusters. They've got their own senators picked out. I met one of them not long ago and their own government in place. And they're following the pattern of West Virginia. When West Virginia mm-hmm. uh, was separated from, uh, uh, Virginia. Correct. Just before the war between the Northern and the Southern tiers of the States and, uh, West Virginia wanted to go to the union. So, they had to apply to get out, and they applied, and the, the Congress approved the application. That's what our Constitution says has to happen. And so that's what they're trying to do in California. It's getting to be a pretty massive movement.
2: Well, you know, the, uh, I had never known that until I heard a talk by Dr. Robert Livingston, who was one of the co-founders of the League of the South and, and also the Abbeyville Institute, uh, both organizations of high renown. And uh-huh. uh, in his speech, and it was an older speech, it's what caught my ear out of the whole speech, was he said, after the Civil War, states can no longer secede, but evidently counties can. And He, he said that. Yes, Robert Livingston uh-huh. did. Now, um, uh-huh. it, this is the northern part of the state, right? Up there where our good listener Samuel lives? Where the people right. have some uh-huh. sanity?
3: Right, it's up next, uh, next to Pennsylvania and the... Of no, West no,
2: Virginia,
0: no, no, no,
3: no, no, it California. Oh, old. no, well, not no, it's not. That's the old uh, state of Jefferson. Those, that's grown into a, a monstrosity of people just trying to make a living off the state of Jefferson and promoting the idea of never getting anywhere. So a new organization mm-hmm. has been founded, and it includes all of California except um, the Bay Area, a corridor that leads to Sacramento, which is the state capital. That's so, in other words... Interstate 70 corridor and all the metropolises along there, Sacramento and the Bay Area, and it includes uh, Los Angeles. That's it. No, no, that's the people that are cut out. The rest of the state, including San Diego, which is a very conservative area, by the way, including San Diego, Northern California, uh, central and central valley and western california and deep southern california san diego that's called new california that's what they're calling it new california and they're organized they're organized pretty well and they have regular meetings and i receive stuff from them constantly because one of the senators has uh, has been somebody i've known for many years uh, just ran and we knew them just many years ago many years ago we still know them and so they keep us they send us videos and information because so they know we're interested. Right. Well, and they that told kind us of, recently that Rick Perry is supposed to be the, first, the interim governor. He's agreed to be the interim governor of New California. I haven't found that anywhere on the Internet. I just heard that from them. Go I'm ahead. I'm not
2: sure if that's good or not.
3: <laughs> I'm not either. But, you know, in politics, people know they have to have personalities with clout to get things done. Right. And, that's not always good. I agree. It can the cause bully.
2: trouble. He could be
3: a, a plant. Yeah. Anyway, that's what's going on. Uh, now, talking about the South and talking about uh, the war, which is always a, an important subject, should be to Americans. And they should contemplate it and recontemplate what mm-hmm. happened there. And it's like a lot of things. When you first hear about it, you think it's the, the, all the questions are are debatable. It's been my conclusion that I hear from the outside, but when I go look at things myself, I say, this isn't debatable what happened. This is clear what happened. I remember I learned that lesson when I was in Montana, Roger, and I stopped at uh, the National Cemetery at, uh, near Little Bighorn, Montana, where Custer got wiped out. The Battle of the Little Bighorn. And, of course, all my life I'd heard about the Battle of the Little Bighorn. I'd read little books about it. And I knew generally about it, as a lot of people do. But when I went to that battlefield and I walked over the entire thing, I said, this is no mystery what happened here. It's clear as crystal what happened. And not to go into the details of it, but it's clear as crystal what happened, why Custer was wiped out, blah, blah, blah. Well, and when us, I look at... Give go a, ahead. Give us a, a thumbnail. Well, it's just simple. There was a plan for two uh, groups of men ho- on horse to ride through. Custer was one, and uh, the other one was a fellow by the name of Bantine, the commander of the other group. They were to enter this massive engine camp and come in from both ends and just wipe everybody out as they charged through. It's just that simple. Catch them by surprise. Well, there was some screw-ups there, and they didn't do it at the same time. You know, it needed to be simultaneous. They didn't Mm -hmm. have cell phones in that day, uh, well, until very recently, where that could be coordinated, and we did have radio later, but it wasn't coordinated right, so they didn't get the impact of the the surprise. They lost the element of complete surprise. They also discovered that instead of being a few hundred, there were about 3,000 of these uh, red men uh, uh, together there. And then, uh, so, um, Custer got isolated and they got him isolated. I say the enemy got him isolated. The Indians got him isolated and they began to drive him back and he began to retreat up the, this long slope of a hill up to the, the ri- a ridge. And it was an open Ridge. There were no trees. It was the open high, high plains kind of a situation near the little mm-hmm. bighorn river, which really wasn't much of a river at all, more of a crick. Oh, and he, and all the way up. And you can go to the battlefield and see this all the way up to the top of, the, of the, this ridge. He got almost to the top, not quite. Uh, the men who were killed when they went back two weeks later, the detail that went back to pick up the bodies. They found the bodies scattered all over creation. And uh, as was the habit and the custom of the red men, the, the squaws went in and mutilated the bodies after they were killed. Did all sorts of nasty things we don't even want to talk about that women uh, did to the bodies. That was their enjoyment in life. And, uh, but they put the markers for each man. They identified him and then they put a marker, a a, a burial marker, a grave marker, a memorial marker right where they found him. So you can go to the battlefield, go from down by the little bighorn, go up the ridge and you can see where every man fell. And what they were doing was fighting their way up that hill. They were trying to keep an organized retreat and they were being killed just one right after another as they went up the the ridge. And then finally they got to the top. And of course, Custer, it's obvious when he get up there where they made their last stand, where every man was killed, there's a marker. Even Custer has a marker there. And so you can see they formed a little perimeter there. And they said, we're not going to make it any other way. A bunch of our men have been killed just trying to get up this ridge. And Custer said, I've got a few men left. Best thing to do here is make a stand. And so he made his stand right there. But it was an impossible situation because the red men just kept coming. And no matter how many they killed, there were more. Well, that's the rule of warfare. In warfare, I, I speak on a good authority of a fellow that told me this, that I uh, went to the Naval Academy and the Naval War College, and he came back, and I asked him, what would you learn? And he said, well, at the War College, I learned this, two things. Number one, uh, all other things being equal, leaving God out of the picture, the acts of God, which are important sometimes, but leaving that out of the picture. Uh, Numbers always win more men, more equipment, more, more armament, more bullets that always wins unless God wants to intervene. Number two, any war ever fought or battle ever fought for anything, but dirt, territory, land, ground is a waste of blood and money. It gets you nothing. You still lose. And of course that explains Vietnam. Yep. That was a war that was a war based upon. And this is the law of the land versus the law of the city. The law of the land is about land. So when you fight wars, you, if you don't have the right reason for fighting the war, which is land to gain control of land and for, for the glory, for the glory of the maker, by the way, that's what he wants. So you can handle it according to his will and not somebody else's who's screwing it up, who's polluting the land with defilement. You gain the land, but, uh, the law, the, um, the, uh, law of the city is not about gaining land. It's like everything else in the law of the city. It's about the majority principle. Uh, how, many, how many KIAs can we have? How many killed in action do we have? Because my career depends upon how many men my unit killed. And then back off and give them the land back. And here they come again. Let's kill a few more. If that's the way we're going to fight a war, we're going to lose everything. In every case, blood and money. It's a, it's a water haul, as the, as the fisherman what? says. It's a waste of time. Go ahead. Well, let's just
2: draw a parallel over to U.S. attorneys. Isn't that the way their little life revolves, too?
4: Correct. How yeah, many not scalps they
2: get on their belt and how well, they move up. Right. And maybe they'll get appointed <laughs> to one of those uh, uh, federal judgeships, and they got Cush for life.
3: You make an excellent point. The evil empire, the, the red men that lived here, were engulfed in Babylonianism, utterly engulfed in it. Uh, as all are all people that are not Christian people. You can't, you can't have it any other way. It's not going to be any other way. So what do the, the red men do? Well, they were easily persuaded to those other, that other group of men who followed the law of the city, the Frenchmen, And their whole idea in life was let's take scalps and let's count them. And, uh, so they did. They, uh, the, the red man fell into taking scalps. Of course they got money for it. Now that's not to say that the white man didn't either. The white men, the Anglos in California, of millions of dollars the federal government paid to the state of California to put out for bounty for Indian scalps. And in California, it was big, big sport to go out and kill as many Indians as you could until 1911. And the last Indian, the last Indian that anybody knew about that was living in the wild showed up at a slaughterhouse. He had been with his little group trying to evade murder, murder uh, for hire by bounty. In other words, count the numbers. How many engines have we got dead now? The federal government was behind all of it and the state of California. They wiped them out. And this engine's name, what was his name? He couldn't speak English. He finally told his story how they had lived up in the Sierras and they had, for years, him and his little group, had had, uh, evaded the scalp hunters. But the scalp hunters were picking them off one by one. They were relentless. Of course, you tell men, hey. Uh, you can get money for killing men and engines and all you gotta do is bring in the scalps. Boy, there are gonna be plenty of men want to do that. Same thing went on in Arizona. So not to say that we didn't get, we're, we're men too. We men, uh, Americans, us American folk, we have, we have an imperfection and you, Put the wrong temptation in front of men, like we're wound up and bound up in our own whims and difficulties, given the right circumstances, if we don't have the power of the spirit of God, we will capitulate. All men will. And that's what's happened, of course. But it comes down to numbers. Numbers, majority. How many can you get? Did you beat the other fellow? That's not what God's law is about. God's law is about doing what he tells you to do. And all that other stuff doesn't matter. Have I been faithful to him? That's the only thing that matters. And what he wants to know about is, have you been faithful not to defile his land? That's what he wants to know. And that's what he wants. How do you do that? Well, number one, you don't covet lie, steal, commit adultery, or murder on his land because it pollutes his land and he'll throw you off. And number two, you follow his law as best you can in every other place. It will give you, as for example, honor thy father and mother, as we've said before, because there's a promise attached to that. What is it? You will live long on the land, long, long days, many days on the land. The Lord, your God has given you. That's the whole point. That's why we do this. That's why we're on this show. It all comes down to that. Do we want to live long on this land? Do we, do we, want we want to please our maker? Do we want his rewards for taking care of his land? Now understand, understand Christian folk out there saying, well, this guy sounds like he's a works righteousness guy. No, I'm not. Um, well, in this sense, I am my, my, uh, My righteousness comes from the works of God, not from me. So it's works, righteousness, his works, not mine. And the substitution of the works of Jesus Christ are my righteousness. But if I have that, I've got a new mind, a new soul, and I want to do what he tells me to do. Because he has given me that desire by a new heart and a new birth. And I want to please him. I don't want to please these political pundits and the faggots and the sodomites and all the perverts out there that want to pollute, destroy, and make life ugly and mean and dirty and low. I don't want that. I want to do what he wants me to do and uh, encourage others to consider if you're persuadable. By what I said, if God has made you persuadable, well, then you'll be persuaded. If God has not made you persuadable, what you just heard will not persuade you at all. Back to you, Roger.
2: No, it's really interesting to see the world go so astray. And that's another reason these programs, especially on Fridays, are so important because we can get those things in perspective like you just went over so eloquently. Chris just joined us, um, and I guess he probably missed that because I think he listens to the show by calling in. How you doing, buddy? Well, Chris, are you there or not?
3: He well, may be there, but we can't hear him, Roger. I, guess.
2: I don't know, boy. You, yeah. never, you
0: never know with all this. I, I wanted I, to I, say, there he is. There here he is. is.
3: Yeah, we got him.
0: I had a call come in at about the same time I dialed in. It was one of those sham calls, supposedly, from the Department of Social Security, and I don't buy their lies. Good man.
2: <laughs> How you doing today?
0: <laughs> Up and Adam and on guard, as usual. Good morning, oh. Brent.
3: Morning.
2: Brent, I wanted to ask you, you, you mentioned, first of all, you, wherever you are, your fidelity is excellent today. Uh, you, you said that you were at the red pill convention.
3: Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm there. And that's why I came here. Where?
2: Where is it? Is, is it okay for you to divulge where they're meeting?
3: Well, it's in the wilds of Nevada. So I'm out in the middle of the otherwise godforsaken rattlesnake pit called the American desert. <laughs> but well, I'll Chris, say this: it sure, it sure is pretty here. Sure Chris, is pretty here.
2: Chris, you aware this is going on? Is it away? How far away from Vegas is it, uh,
3: Brent? Oh, I'm about an hour and a half away.
0: Chris, you know this is going on? Uh, I not that could be Mesquite or up, I suppose I'm not That's sure. That's
3: right. Where. Yeah, Mesquite. Mesquite. Mm. Yeah.
0: That's Bundyville. Well,
3: yeah, yeah. You know, I was here. Uh, one of the Bundy boys are here, by the way. I, talked to him last night but um i was here 20 years ago and i when i was in the mining business i was in nevada a lot and traveling and i liked to stay in mesquite because there was nothing here except a couple of big uh, casinos pretty much and um i like to stay in casinos back in those days because the smorgasbord for breakfast and supper were five dollars all mm-hmm. you could eat and it wasn't just all you could eat of of uh second rate food. It was the best of food. Of course, they count on you gambling, which I've never done. I've spent hundreds of nights in casinos because I stay there when I travel, but I've never dropped one coin in a slot. Never. I don't know why. I just never had a desire to do it. I don't get into it for some reason. So I don't do that, but I do like to stay and, um, uh, and eat their food. Anyway, Mesquite has grown now. It's a city of it's a town, well, about town, 20,000 people. And, uh, there's a lot here and nice stuff money flowing in um it's a nice place of course you can still as they say uh, out west even if you're in the city you feel like you're in the country because you can see all the mountains around you and uh, you can see the barrenness of the desert all around you get up on a high place here and there are a few high places you can see that so no it's not las vegas i don't like las vegas anymore it's gotten too big for me i don't It's the big city, and it's filled with people from New York and all around the world. Last time I went to Las Vegas for a conference, we went to one of the casinos down on the Strip and stayed there and had the conference there. And I swear, I didn't see anybody. I didn't see Roger. And this is not a statement calculated to be racist. It's just a fact. I didn't see any white people the whole time I was there except the people at our conference. In other words, the people that worked and lived in uh, Las Vegas, where I was, were all um, of Mexican descent, uh, or near Eastern descent or Oriental descent. And, uh, there, but by the way, those are the people that work in Las Vegas to make the town operate. Again, that's not a statement calculated to be racist. It's a statement of who has populated that city. It's all different now. Um, different than what, you know, no, when I was a little boy, first time I went to Las Vegas, Roger and Chris was in 1959 when I was a little boy. And we took a trip out Route 66 to see a cousin of my mother's who had landed out uh, just the other side of Palm Springs. And he's been there ever since. A uh, little place called Banning, which was a little place. It's not a little place anymore. Well, that's when we got to Las Vegas, we went down the strip to see it. I remember this as a child. And I remember going down to the Banyan where Banyan founded, were founded. he set up that he was a fellow that really landed in town from Texas. He had a carload of cash nobody knows where it came from probably oil money he stole or something i don't know but he opened up a big uh, big uh, gambling joint there i forget the name of it but we no went horseshoe. there was,
2: no horseshoe
3: that's it that's it yeah i remember and uh so i had a friend a client not many years ago take me down there i said i want to see it again we went down there the old strip as they say and it was a mm-hmm. town of about fifty thousand people then so it was it was a pretty good sized town like getting up like mesquite and it was going but it wasn't the city that it is now you know and uh i'm amazed of course out here in nevada they just uh, the gambling industry built these little places around but uh that's kind of going away because gambling i suppose it seems like it's everywhere now and las vegas doesn't have the old monopoly they used to have in, in nevada but they still have in nevada the mining industry which is large Mm-hmm. Very large.
2: You know the how biggest
3: I, gold discovery in the United States is here, and it's still being mined. Go ahead.
2: And they're they're trying to resurrect the Comstock load. Somebody's been putting together land uh, parcelage for a long time, thinking there's a lot of residue there they miss. They can get with these newer techniques. You know how I knew about that horseshoe? That no. was John Benson's favorite place to eat. And yeah, we had those <laughs> conventions out there in Las Vegas yeah. and I ate yeah. a few meals there. I remember they got a mound of boiled shrimp. that will just yeah. make, you, make your tongue drool.
3: Well, those old places it's, it's fun to go into them. I remember as a little boy going in and, and my father was showing me the one armed bandits. That's what they used to call them, you know, and uh, everything's electronic now, but back then you would put the coin in the slot and pull the lever and, uh, It was amazing going in there and now that i'm older and how little those places were and how crowded uh, elbow to elbow and the tables where you eat and the slot machines everywhere Well, the, the opposite is true in las vegas now things are made on a massive scale cover 20 acres 40 i don't know maybe not 40 but just everything spread out and open and of course there's a lot of open space here so that works out okay not like they're hurting for Space out here in the middle of the desert. But the problem out here is water.
2: That's right.
3: Big problem. And where are they going to get it? See, and they're, they're reaching out. They've reached into Northern Nevada and taken up water rights. And that's hurt the ranchers because ranching in Nevada doesn't depend upon grass. It depends upon water. You know, you just get enough land. They'll, they'll find enough vegetation to eat those cattle. It'll take a lot of land. I had a friend who lived out here. He's gone now. He was about the same age as my father. And he had we, we we say ranch land, but he said, uh, we don't look at it that way. We look at it as water rights. If you can get the water rights. And he said, I had them. I got them in the early days. It was a strip of land about 30 miles wide. No, 60 miles long, 15 miles wide. Uh, a lot of land. He And he raised cattle on it. Of course, you let the cattle run over large ranges of land. Here's a here's a bit of, of a trivia that uh, folk don't know about that are not acquainted with ranching on western land and the question is this and the answer to it's simple but it's never said because i suppose ranchers don't say it much but what is range r-a-n-g-e you know we talk about the open range well the range out west is the distance the distance that a cow will a cow will wander from the water source the distance that a cow will wander from the water source and every Hmm. cow who's on the range on the range has a range and it's a circumference. It'll go around in a circle and the cattle will wander in every direction from that source of water, whether it's a water tank or a pond or a Creek or whatever it is, because out West that's number one out here. They don't talk about out West. They don't talk about, well, they talk about it this way. They say,
2: well, now we clipped out on Brent. He'll be back in a second. They 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 say whiskey's for drinking. Have you got me? Yeah.
3: Water's not said to be for drinking. Whiskey's for drinking. Yeah, whiskey's for drinking. Water's for fighting. Those people fight over it. I remember one of the last cases of any note that Jerry Spence had out west was a case about water rights, but it turned, it was really, well, it was a murder case, but really it was about water rights because one man, just with great indiscrimination, I believe he threw a stick of dynamite into a house and killed a few people, but he was just after one, but it was over water rights and he just got out of control. And the case, uh, ended up, well, it was a mess. Just, it was a, a whole mess of intrigue and families and feud feuds, you know, right. families feuding over water. Well, a feud over land. But the thing we must remember is water is a, is a land right, like mineral rights, timber rights, crop rights, coal rights, oil rights, gas rights, and in our common law country, a country of the law of the land, we have this understanding, and we just accept it, that we can that uh, we can split up the rights in land and sell different rights to different people. That's not true over the rest of the world to the gr- no, it's degree not. it is.
2: I mean, yeah. in Argentina, no mineral rights run
3: with the land. <laughs> they no. all belong to the government. Oh, yep. it belongs to the government. Eventually. Yep. Now that's fascinating. Now, governor, governor, no president, Herbert Hoover had a wife and her name was Lou, Lou Hoover. And he and her, he's from Iowa. He grew up a Quaker, uh, in, in the, on the frontier in Iowa. And then he ended up, uh, his parents passed away and an uncle took him in out in the state of Washington, I believe it was. And he wanted, he said he heard about Stanford and he wanted to apply. It was kind of a new school. He applied to Stanford and he studied geology and mining engineering. And his wife, he met his wife there in a geology lab. She was there also. Well, his wife had gone to school at some fancy school for girls and had learned Latin. So he, after they got out, he became a mining engineer, of course. And she knew Latin. So they teamed up together and they took a book that had never been translated into English, but it had been the standard of mining engineering in Europe for years, but it was written in Latin. And it was Agricola's treatise on mining, Agricola. And they were the first people to translate that into English. But in the preface of that book, she contributed her understanding of Latin. He contributed a better understanding, really, of geology and mining engineering. But in the preface of that book, he said, you can tell real quick whether or not a country is free. It's amazing he had this insight as a young man. You can tell how free a country is by just finding out who has title to rights in minerals, initial title to rights in minerals. And in America, it's always been that the person who purchases them has that right. And even on federal lands yet today, uh, the rights are of course vested in the federal government, but the only reason they're vested there is so that that, uh, the private citizen, the private or the person who has intentions of being a United States citizen can enter that land and claim up those rights. The government, is not the miner of minerals. But he said also, and this is true, never in the history of mankind has any government ever successfully mined minerals. Ever. That's important to understand it and sure know is. It as a reality. Say history has taught us something. Don't, we can't ever say we're going to let the government take that over, or take farming over. Like Tom Jefferson, farming, same way. You know, you, you, we don't have anything that we don't coax it from the soil or worry it from the mountains. We have nothing. All of our wealth has to come out of the ground. There's no other option. God made it that way. That's why land is important. And that's why if the law of the land does not govern land, the men that are on land, then there will be no prosperity because the law of the land is all about men taking lordship of land under God's ultimate allodial lordship, his landlordship, and making the land productive to his glory and our benefit. That is the fundamental overarching policy all of God's law in two volumes the laws of nature unwritten in the nature of things our common law the law of the land and the laws of nature's God written in the Bible which is also the law of the land that undergirds our common law that's where we are well Nevada has been a big part of that but yeah it comes down to minerals you're that's I see the same thing others have observed that that's to be noted only only the private Sector can mine minerals successfully, and by the way, we discover only the private sector in Nevada can run whorehouses. I don't say that. That's for right. the- <laughs> I-
0: well, oh, <laughs> a couple of caveats there. <laughs> <laughs> if-
3: well, the government tried it with uh, Muslim- yeah, the yeah, failed, yeah. right? Yeah, and failed. <laughs> well. Uh, and i I say that again not to say that we need to have whorehouses and that's not a good thing that's always a dangerous thing and but it is true like this one professor law professor down in texas said at the university of texas i went to listen to him lecture and debate once i forget his name he's a of mexican descent he has a, a latino name but he's a mexican he's american but he grew up in texas but he's, the question was posed to him and a Jewish fellow from New York who were debating whether or not busing was a good idea, busing school children uh, to try to, you know, all about that. Anyway, he said, the question is not, can the government uh, do this and make it better? Is the government, the question is not, is the government competent to bus children? And his answer was, that's not the right question. The ultimate question is, and the only question we need to answer is, is the government competent to do anything? Why even ask narrowly about anything? And he said the obvious answer is the government is incompetent to do anything. But he said there are some things, and I agree with him, there are some things only government can do, namely national defense and justice. In other words, the government has a duty under God to provide juries for courts and courts to administer juries and what juries do. And the government has a a duty, an affirmative duty to provide national defense. Well, there you are. The laws, uh, the, the people of the United States are the militia and it, the two duties of the militia, according to our common law, the law of the land are number one, national defense, the willingness to take up arms in defense of the country. And number two, jury duty. And there you have the oath of every law office holder in that common law document we call the Constitution of the United States, that they have to take that oath that they will defend our land. There's the land against all enemies, our law of the land, our Constitution. Our Constitution is the law of the land. It calls itself that, Article 6. And to defend the law of the land is to defend the land, and to defend the land is to defend the law of the land. And every officer has to swear that he will support and defend the law of the land, our constitution against enemies, foreign, that's militia duty, the willingness to take up arms, and domestic, that's the willingness to serve on the jury or bring suit under the law of the land, to bring an action in court in defense of the right application of the law of the land. It comes back to those two duties. That was his fellow's point. He didn't say it that way because he wasn't a comparative lawyer. And he didn't spend his life comparing the law of the land with the law of the city. But he did understand enough to say this is what our tradition as Americans say, say, says. Um, duties, uh, The duties of government. Who are the governors? They are the people. We the people of the United States. Who are the people? The militia of the several states. That's abundantly apparent in history. The people are the militia. The militia are the people. Who are the people? They are the male members of our country who are willing and able-bodied to take up arms. That's what they are. And this is fundamentally in general, their duty. Somebody said to me recently, well, what about men that cannot take up arms? Well, they still have a duty to serve on the jury and they have a duty to to contribute to national defense any way they can. Logistically, duty. however,
2: yeah,
3: Yeah. it's every man's duty to do that regardless of how able-bodied he is. But of course we talk about members of the militia by mandatory law well, that's the able-bodied men that must take up arms, and they're responsible to, to, uh, to acquire a military-grade weapon and uh, ammunition and to train themselves in the use of it at their own expense. That's what the militia is all about. Not like the Swiss. People like to hold up the Swiss as the example. Well, the problem is the Swiss, that's a law of the city country. They have a lot of good ideas. Uh, what they do is good, but their weapons are provided. The government provides their weapons. Very dangerous, you see. Because whatever the government gives you, the government controls if the government is the giver. And they say, yeah, but they let those people have their weapons after the militia duty is over. When they reach a certain age, they get to keep those weapons. Yes, that's true, but still, it's something the government provided. And what the government provides, it will control because whoever pays the fiddler calls the tune, period. It's always been that way. It's, among the, it's that way among every people. You take something from government, then they're going to call the tune and control it. You take federal financial assistance from government, they will control you to some degree, to varying degrees. You take uh, assistance from the federal government or the state government for education, they will control that entirely. That's why it's not a good idea to send your children to government schools. You're better off doing something else. But Mm -hmm. bottom line, it's important that the militiaman provide his own gun his own art his own ammunition, and his own training in arms. Back to you, Roger.
2: If you accept the benefit, you owe the duty. It comes from the thousand years of feudal precedent,
3: and even before that, Roger, it's a, it's a fact of We're life trying. among you. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Whoever, other, whoever. Go ahead. Go ahead. The,
2: the other I'm thing ahead. at the start of your very eloquent soliloquy, there, uh, you used the example of busing, forced busing. Now, mm-hmm. I'm really hypersensitive to that. Issue because I understand that it is the way that they started the final move, the final pivot, if you will, militarily, of slamming the trap door and putting everybody into the second tier citizenship when 15 years before they'd hid the old status over in American Samoa. It's a really important incident. And you say government-inspired. Well, of course, this just goes to show you who's controlling the government because they didn't do it. It's the people behind it that wanted to enslave everybody.
3: Well, there is that subversive. Go ahead, Chris. Go ahead. Uh, ahead. a problem.
0: I hesitate to even slow you down, Brent, because you're always so eloquent and fundamentally accurate, uh, you found everything on time, honored principles of facts, law and evidence. And I truly love that. And I think most of the listeners on this station do one minor correction. I think you unintentionally misstated the name of that fully in downtown Las Vegas is Binion's Benny Binion being the founder of that particular hotel where they have the gold horseshoe with a million dollars on display there. Yeah. Uh, close to Golden Nugget and others down there. Uh-huh. Uh, it's my contention, and I'm not sure you'd disagree with me on it, that the so-called guard, protect, and defend clause uh-huh. from the Second Amendment and from our duties to uh, protect the country really stems, in essence, from the ancient castle doctrine. Mm-hmm. Uh, from, and every man's home is his castle, and his country is his castle effectually, and I think that's where the profound duty from the creator to beat our plowshares into swords, to guard, protect, and defend against all enemies, foreign and domestic, actually emanates from.
3: Well, it may, but I don't think that. I'm not quarreling with that at all. It's obviously very important, because the protection of your little parcel of real estate and your land and your house is protection of everybody else's. But I don't find this ca- the castle doctrine expressed until more modern times I say more modern times within the last couple of hundred years although it's always been there but the idea of uh, um, uh, the, the the two duties of the militiamen I can find that expressed uh, hundreds and hundreds of years ago and I like to go back to this uh, land deed that we have of uh, in the days of the youth when King Alfred the Great was only six years old about see that had been uh, he was born uh, in uh, 849, I think. So whenever he was six years old, it be 855. Yeah, 855 is on that deed. And uh, those words are expressed there. Uh, the, uh, and the way it's said is, uh, oh, I don't remember the exact word, and I better not try to, try to quote it. But we find that principle in our common law, that the two duties of government come from the militiamen, the people. And the phrase, the people, a castle doctrine, probably has always been a part of it. As again, I just don't find it expressed until Pitt makes that famous statement, really, and on the floor of the, of the parliament when he says, uh, um, uh, every man in his cottage, uh, <laughs> the, the phrases are memorable, some of them, he says, uh, every man in his cottage may bid all defiance to the crown. It may be I forget what the word he used there, but he said it may be weak. The storm may enter, the rain may enter, the wind may enter, but the king of England cannot enter. All of his force dare not cross the threshold of the ruined tenement. And he uses the word tenement. Well, that means that this landholder that has this little house is in somebody else's ultimate uh, house. In other words, the house of a, a landlord. But even though he's a poor man who lives in somebody else's house, then the castle doctrine applies. It's his place of abode. He has jurisdiction there. No one can enter that uh, without a proper warrant, proper authority. That's a synonym for authority, and we call that a warrant when it comes down to the searches and seizure under the Fourth Amendment. But very important, because to defend your own house and to defend your own land, to to serve on the jury in defense of the law of the land uh, is to defend the land of your landlord, and to defend the land of your landlord in old England during the what they call the feudal days, but it was yep. different in common law it was on the continent, is right. to defend the land of the king and every person above you. It was and good. for the king to defend the it would do for the king to defend the land is to defend the land and the, the land rights. See, we split up under this this, this system and of land ownership at common law. Land rights became split up. Everybody had a different right a, 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 to a piece of a property. Sometimes many different people had different rights to the same piece of property, Mm -hmm. but to defend your piece of property is to defend the rights of other men, and for them to defend lots of pieces of property, if they were greater men up on the chain, was to defend your property rights on your Mm -hmm. little five-acre parcel. So this was a good thing, and it developed. That's what developed. The feudal system came to England through William the Conqueror because he lived in France where he gained this imprint of the law of the city but then he transplanted it and the law of the land took it in and developed what we have today and with common law the whole idea of the splitting up of rights of land ownership and land ownership of common law is seen as as all ownership of all property whether it's chattels movables or unmovables land or personal property we see it all as a bundle of rights and that's the way our courts have always referred to it if you have a fee simple title in land then you have a bundle of rights and you have the right to many different things. But there may be um, something at some point you did. Maybe there's a a life estate that comes uh, uh, after you own the land. Well, somebody else has a future interest in that land. Uh, We as creative as people want to be land rights can be divided up in our common law tradition. And that's what's made us powerful. Go ahead.
2: Would it be uh, accurate to say That William the Conqueror hybridized the Anglo Saxon common law?
3: Uh, Yeah, I guess it would be. I don't know. That'd probably be a good word. But he certainly brought to the common law something the common law never had. Number one, administrative skills and organization. Uh, which enabled it mm-hmm. to become even more consistent because mm-hmm. the Roman law is all about bureaucracy and administration. Right. Right. So he brought that in. And if you want to see the Norman administration in a visual, just look at uh, Westminster Abbey, places like that or what? No, what was the name of that? I think that was it. I've never been to England. I just read about these things, but the structures that he built, the Norman structures that are still standing are still beautiful. Uh, uh, speak of the austere mindset. The, the architecture of them, the austere mindset of these Normans, who were Norwegians and had been adherents to the law of the land, the common law, as it was understood under those Germanic Scandinavian tribes, brought that to the coast of France, where they were sl- Romanized to some degree. And so what they ended up doing was combining the two, but uh, when they came to England, then the first act of William the Conqueror was to declare all common law in force, which was the habit of the Normans wherever they conquered they never, they never tried to enforce a, a foreign law on anybody, even when uh, Nor- William's brother, Roger, conquered, conquered Sicily and Constantinople. He just said, well, the law that was enforced and the government that was enforced is still enforced. We're just changing management. Well, that's what uh, William did. But William then added, as you say, he added ideas. For example, this is a big one. Uh, before William got there, under Anglo-Saxon England, the sheriffs in every shire were chosen by the people of the shire. When William got there, the sheriffs then were assigned and chosen by him, and that's why, of ah. course, in the days not too many after, too many after that, many years after that, the grandson during the days of the sons and grand, so he'd been the grandson of uh, William the Conqueror. We had that sheriff that became famous, the sheriff of Nottingham. Right. Well, he. All these fellows were, these sheriffs, they were called shire, shire reeves. The reeve is an old Anglo word that means agent. They were agents. They were before agents of the shire. But after William came there, they became agents of the, the crown. In so the they shire. were there to, ri- yeah, in the shire, to ride herd and make sure that he knew everything that was going on in that shire. That which, And then he renamed them. They weren't shires after that, increasingly. The people called them counties, which is a Latin word that came from France, a Latin-based based word, count and county. But so that's why we say county today because of the French influence of William the Conqueror when we used to say shire. And that's how that changed. But, yeah, now in America, if you'll notice, now our sheriffs here, let me say one more thing, Roger. Then our, our sheriffs here are not chosen by the sovereign, the governor. They're not appointed by no, the governor of the that's state. right. No, they're chosen, and as Williams uh, Wilson said, Justice James Wilson on the first panel of the uh, the Supreme Court, he made the point: America is not an attempt to revert back to the time of Magna Carta. No, no, America is an attempt to revert back to what Magna Carta tried to revert back to, but didn't get the job done back to Anglo-Saxon England before the Norman invasion. Oh. That's why we, by the way, just one thing among many we do here that they don't do in England, but the election of our sheriffs locally is one of the big things we do. We would try sure to reverse is. what William the Norman did back to you.
2: Well, I know the feds, when they come in IRS or any of the others, they have to go through the sheriff before they go do a seizure and all that stuff. Uh, I was well, gonna- they don't.
3: Roger. They don't, Roger. They don't, but they're supposed to. I agree, but they don't.
2: Like I know it. there were sheriffs out west that would keep them out of their uh, out of their county. Uh, I wanted to go that. back to William yeah. for a second. And wasn't one of the first things that he did after he got control was to institute the Doomsday Book?
3: Well, that was wasn't the first thing, no. But he did that later. I'd probably, well, I think it was about twenty years later. Oh, See, was that long? Okay. Yeah, October fourteenth of ten sixty six, and then right. I think it was in the ten eighties he began to try to compile. Every hog, every horse, every oxen, every chicken, every piece of land, every piece of wainage, that was the old word for um, uh, farm implements, plows and cultivators and gangs for oxen, for the plows, all that. He he wanted to know how much of everything was in the kingdom. He was very much an organizer, very much a bureaucrat, very much an administrator. Mm-hmm. And so he, he compiled this doomsday book, and the doomsday book, doom. To in those days, it's an old Anglo word. It didn't mean uh, something negative, always. It could, but it was a context-dependent word. Doom meant uh, a judgment that could not be reversed. That's really what it meant, and that was from old uh, Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Dane, uh, Anglo-Dane tongue on the continent. A doom could be a blessing. It could be a curse. It depends. Go ahead.
2: It's double uh, O M E S D A Y. If I remember right, there's two O's in there, I think. It's not not spelled like it's pronounced.
3: Well, um, the two O's came later, Uh, even during Alpha the Great. Alpha the Great had compiled a a doomsday book, but it was D-O-M, Dom Day, Dom, the Doms. He, and Alfred the Great lived in the ninth century. So this is an ancient idea. But again, just because it says doom doesn't mean that it was a negative thing.
2: Yeah, catastrophic. It wasn't,
3: it, but it was meant to communicate to people that this is something that we're doing that cannot be reversed. A doom is something that cannot be reversed under the old Anglo-Saxon, mm-hmm. anglo dane the Scandinavian religion. The Scandinavian religion, before the Christian scriptures, before the writings of the Bible, the writs of God got to them, they had what they called dooms or doms. And those doms were the product they proceeded forth from their ultimate God, and their ultimate God's name was veered, veered. Uh, That's the way they pronounced it, but it was would have been written with a W, but they didn't have writing. Today we pronounce it weird, W-E-I-R-D, and their saying was that the doms, the dooms of weird, cannot be changed. In other words, they were ultimate. And fascinatingly, that's why Christianity became so quickly a part of their lives once it arrived, because they looked at Christianity and they said, "Hey, this God." is not a God that changes. Hebrews chapter, whatever chapter it is, I think 13. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. His judgments do not change. His will does not change. He is God, and he sits in the heavens, and he does whatsoever pleases him. Not what pleases man. We can't change him. He's not subject. He's not fickle. He's like our God. The God, the ancient God, which was a false God, of course, but still they had this concept in their heads about the unchangeableness of God and Beowulf. The earliest writing we have, from the, the Nordic tribe tradition, as far as we can tell, uh, Beowulf makes the comment in there. He says, uh, and this is something that they didn't believe, but he said, is it possible that the doms of Veard can be reversed? And he said it would be only be possible if a man doty be. doty In other words, uh, persistent can he change fate? Uh, the good translation of that word today would be fate, because fate cannot be changed. And the, that's what Beard was to those ancient people. Mm-hmm. So the Domesday book, though, like could have karma. been a blessing to fate. Kind of like y- karma. You know, yeah. It, there's a similarity in yeah. all those things, but the Anglo-Saxon, Anglo-Dane, Scandinavian, Nordic, Germanic religion was... Um, Across the board, pretty much the same with all of them. They had some different dialects, of course, but pretty much even the same Germanic uh, tongue. And they all had this idea that was a little bit different than the rest of Babylonianism. And that was the sovereignty, the utter sovereignty of this thing called veered And by the way, the thing then, T-H-I-N-G, sometimes pronounced with different vowels, thing, thong, thing, became among men. The ultimate, the ultimate giver of the irreversible among men, as far as men go, not including Beard, but among men, the irre- irreversible dooms, the doms of their lives, because that was the jury, the thing. They call it the thing. You know, when we used to watch the Munsters back a long time ago, the Munsters and one of the characters in the Munsters was the thing, if you remember. Yes. Well, the people that wrote those stories, it was really rotten stuff, but the people who wrote those stories understood what the thing was. In England, then later on, the leader of, the, of, the, of the, the landlord, the administrator of the manor house was called the Thane, T-H-A-N-E, which is a derivative of thing. It has to do with government. Back to you, Roger.
2: Wow, I wanted to touch back on the Doomsday book in the, when I first started learning this stuff and being exposed to it um, uh-huh. in Black's Law Dictionary. It's listed, and it's got a very uh-huh. interesting uh, description in there, and it talks uh-huh. about uh, uh, William the Conqueror and this book, and it, it uses the exact language minutes and seconds, which is surveying language. And so uh-huh. he had, exactly like you were saying, I didn't know it was that complete down to the to the uh, oh, yeah. amount of, of plows that uh, did the fields, oh, yeah. but I knew it was a survey so that he could take all that land under himself and then divvy it out to his pals. You've talked right. about that before, how he was very smart politically, and he didn't uh-huh. give them a, a, a all in one spot. he'd he'd section it out around the country so the nobles would have to be busy riding between one plot to the other to oversee it and make sure it was being taken care of correctly and couldn't get together and plot against him.
3: That's true, but even more ingenious, he was ingenious within this. He also did it, above all things, he did it for national defense and for funding of government because there there was no money, so all taxes were paid in kind of men. And it was called the Knight's Fee. And depending upon how much land you were on the chain, you were, well, he just, first he divided all the land of England up among 200, about 200 of his chief military officers. And he said to them, look, you can have all the profits off this land you want, deal with it the way you want. Here's what I want. I want X number of knights, fully trained, fully trained on horseback, fully equipped for battle. And each of them are required to serve up to 40 days per year. This is what I want. And he, boy, he had it all penciled out. And then, of course, those guys said, okay, now what I'm going to do? I got this land. Well, so they divvied their land out to other landholders. And they said, all I want from you is X number of knights. Of course, they knew what they needed to satisfy the allodial. He called himself the allodial landlord, the king himself, who was allodial landlord of all all the land in England. But every man, see, down along that chain had a... Had a enforceable rights in land. Mm-hmm. This is not slavery. Mm-hmm. This is enforceable rights in land, enforceable in the king's courts—that's what right. we call the, the king's bench—and and all litigation, everything in England in those days was about land. There wasn't anything else. And if you went to court, the only thing you, really, you could really go to court over was land, and uh, so everything down, right down to the, 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 the villein that had five acres or less. He had something he had to contribute to go up that chain of command to provide national defense. Some of those fellows held land on simply one one commitment, maybe, for example, that he would ride, if they ever went to the continent of Europe, this got really precise, if they ever went to the continent of Europe in battle, that he would be with the king or the lord or somebody and he would hold his helmet as they, as they went across the channel. Just that simple task. The tasks were all divided up among people everybody had a duty to do that went ultimately to national defense. and in exchange for your willingness to fight for the land, you got a, a right in land or big rights in land or several small rights or there was no limit to how it was divided up, but it was all kept track of, track of very well. And that is the strength of our common law, because we still, even though we don't do it the same way, we have that idea. Listen, if I go into court as a juryman, I have a duty to everybody to defend the law of the land, so the land won't be defiled by men that covet lies, steal, commit adultery and murder, and number two, that rights in land will be maintained. You know, even the villain as, um, um. Uh, It used to be said in England, the villain is said to be a slave. He wasn't. He's said to be a serf. He was a serf. But even he had an enforceable right in land, namely that you couldn't take me away from the land that the law attaches me to. Well, if you can't take a man away from the the land that attaches him, then he can't be separated from his family. it just expands from there. So any little little sliver of right that a fellow had that was connected to land made him A free man to that extent, because if you have a right, a responsibility, that's what a right is, that the law will enforce to that degree, you have freedom. You are not in thralldom, abject slavery at that point. And uh, that was the genius of what happened in England. Go ahead, Roger.
2: Um, uh, Reaching back to John's lessons with uh, some of the famous English jurists like Cook it's spelled Coke, but it's pronounced cook Pollock and Uh Maitland and some of those guys. And I don't remember which one to attribute these to specifically, but they had a term for it called the unfree.
4: Uh Okay. Now, as
2: we, as we go back and as I go back in my mind and try and differentiate some of this stuff, something just hit me. Uh I've never thought about before Uh Uh and where, the Anglo-Saxon common law changed to the English common law with William the Conqueror bringing in these, this hybridized system. And uh-huh. uh, But when he brought it in in England, in that system, as opposed to on the continent where it had originated as an outgrowth out of Rome, there was voluntary and involuntary serfs, totally different classes. When William came over, did they institute that same two-tier serf system, or were all of the English variety, the unfree, were they all voluntary serfs?
3: Well, they were all unvoluntary as far as I could tell, but the, the language, the words used often by the historians, you talked about Maitlick and Pollock. Those fellows are really good, by the way, to read. Oh, man, but, they're but, so uh, eloquent. The, yeah the language they used to talk about it is uh, and this is, has stuck and still part of our common law there were They didn't use so much free I've heard those terms, but mostly what they said was uh freeholders and non-freeholders uh that all freeholders of what land mm-hmm. but they didn't say they didn't say you were slave, they right. said you were non freeholder A only, freeholder that became the uh, the uh,
2: uh, go ahead. Uh, one of them they referred to it as the English variety of slavery.
3: Yes, but again, it was not abject slavery, no, no, it and as wasn't. long and this the, de- the the definition I like to apply to what is slavery, slavery is an as a as is a is an all or nothing word, um, as far as I can see in history, and the words used for it, for example, in the New Testament and the Old Testament both, uh, the New Testament more uh, the word uh, used for slave doulos means abject slavery. You have no rights. You can enforce the law will enforce at all. You are under the absolute unrelenting, unexceptional, uh, will of your master life and death. He wants to kill you. He can kill you. He wants to sell you to somebody else and or sell your wife and children. He can do that. That's abject slavery. That was never the case. And, uh, Mansfield, uh, came to this conclusion after long consideration in the Somerset case, which a case about a slave from Virginia, a slave jurisdiction at that time that came with his master to England. And as soon as his foot touched the, the dirt in that, on that island he, he disappeared he was found and jailed and the writ of habeas corpus was put in for him and uh, English said well no we can't find the English justice Mansfield Lord Mansfield uh, his name was Murray really but they called him Lord Ma- Mansfield he said I've looked and he said I can't find anywhere in the history of England where slavery the our common law ever made slavery lawful Blackstone made the same observation He said, if slavery has ever existed at common law, or in England, it could only do so by positive law. That means the act of a legislature, fundamentally, or a decree of a king. He said, I don't find it. Now, there were a lot of people at that time, about 15,000 slaves were being held in England during the days of the Somerset case, which was just before uh, our separation from Britain. But at that time, 15,000 were being held, but that doesn't mean it was lawful, and that was Justice Mansfield's... Uh, point. And after that case, all 15,000 of them went free because people got scared.
2: I think that yeah. they made slavery legal in several of the port cities so that they could uh, uh, use that as one of the triangle bases for the trade. But in the rest well, of the slavery country, was it not- wasn't.
3: They yeah, are. the free soil doctrine applied to England of our common law in the colonies. Slavery was lawful in all of our colonies for a very long time. You know, they talk about the southern states, but no, mm-hmm. it was lawful because we weren't part of England. And they said Blackstone even makes this point in his commentaries. the common law does not apply in our American plantations in our American colonies. Why? Because we were part of the empire. That's why we went mm-hmm. to war. Mm-hmm. We said you can get you guys, and that's why we had slavery. We said because it's not possible in England. They, we said to them. Now you fellows. Now wait a minute. Uh, you can do this to the people on the other side of the world in India and Pakistan and places like that, but you can't do that to us. We're we're kin to you. Right. We're, we're we have consanguinity. We're British too. You can't call us the Empire and deny us the common law rights of against search and seizure, right to keep and bear arms. Our this separation thing from Britain was all about our common law, and we said we are entitled. To the, we said this when we wrote a letter to them, uh, 14th of October, 1774, the first Congress convened. They wrote a letter to the Crown, they said, and Parliament. And they said, uh, we demand our rights, our inestimable rights to trial by jury under the course of the common law. The course, that means due process. Mm-hmm. The course of the common law. The law of the land, by the way, means due process also. Back to you, Roger.
2: Well, our buddy from Placerville out there in Northern California, Samuels, joined us. How you doing today, brother? The fire's gone down?
4: Yeah, that seems to be passe uh, for now, but uh, you never know. I, we just aren't getting any rain, so that's not helping anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's nothing in sight either, so it looks like they're going to block it, uh, keeping a high-pressure zone out there in the Pacific and move it all around us so. strange times anyway. uh,
2: there's an interesting california story on well there's a bunch of interesting california stories out lately but this one's particularly interesting i sent it to brent right before we went on the air um it's over on zero Heads. there's a brewery out there evidently evidently it's a microbrewery kind of thing i'm not sure their reach or their brand uh, samuel you may drink their beer i don't know uh, but regardless on the On their beer cans on the bottom now, they're printing, Epstein didn't kill himself.
0: (laughs) And I thought it was
2: particularly poignant because it's little signs like those right there that tell you the worm is turning.
4: Yeah. Well, I wanted to to give a little... uh, I I worked with a gentleman here who was... um, he told me he fought in the Battle of the Bulge, so that sort of dates how old. He'd probably be about 90, 95 if he was still alive. Wonderful guy. And he's old old family um, from the El Dorado County area. Uh, they owned a lot of land. And there's a place, uh, I don't know if you know it, Brent, uh, it's called El Dorado Hills. I have heard of it. It's a very affluent um, community, upper middle class, all professionals that bought homes around Folsom Lake. Mm -hmm. And um, that used to be Hank's grazing for their animals, his family, Mm -hmm. for the uh, summer or wintertime. I don't know how they did it. Mm -hmm. And they also had property up around Tahoe. And Hank says, just just show you how much California has changed. He said they used to run their herd up highway fifty mm-hmm. <laughs> to get them from one uh field to another, depending on the season. I mean, mm-hmm. right now, if you put one cow out there, you'd probably attract twelve police officers, so, Oh, yeah. yeah because it's the main artery it's the, it's eighty eighty and fifty are the only uh, two, uh, you know, arteries that link
3: us east to west in this well, area. It, things have changed rapidly. I know people my age that grew up in Southern California, and uh, they all tell me, man, when I was growing up, we all knew that Sacramento was nothing more than a cow town. It was the state capital, but we looked at it that way. Oh, that's just that cow town up there. And that's pretty much all it was. And all that area, of course, around Sacramento, and I remember being stationed down in the Bay Area back in the 70s, and we'd drive up, toward uh, uh auburn past sacramento and the places that we would see there used to be a restaurant out there called cattleman's restaurant way out on the west side of, of west no not on the west side fur far west of sacramento up the hill as they say there toward reno yeah and uh cattleman's on the north side of the road yeah north side of the road Well, there was nothing out there and we used to stop and eat there, but now that's all urban built up, huge. You know, in Sacramento was, really was, compared to Los Angeles, it was nothing but a cow town. I know a fellow there who has uh, his, his grandpa, he's up in, he's pretty near 90, but his grandpa bought up land just down the hill from the Grass Valley uh, area toward Mather, Mather, is that Air Force Base? Yeah, I think that's it. a matter of fact, his family sold land to the that's feds. That, that's Beal. Beal, okay, okay, that- I'm with you. I got you. Yep. Thanks for the correction. Beale Air Force Base. And his family sold a lot of the land that the feds bought before World War II to put that base together. But he still got a lot of land up there. And uh, he tells me the story about what that land was worth when his granddad got it, which would have been him back in the 1880s maybe or something. Or uh, maybe before. Well, Jerry Brown's family were big ranchers up above... Uh, uh, Nevada City, way up in the mountains up there, and he ha- still has the old family ranch. But that's how quick cha- things have changed. You go from a ranching family like the Brown family, who were lived up on the land, they depended upon the land, they ran cattle, and now, two generations later, you got this wacko married to a Babylonian Judaism woman, who is so far out there, that he, it's, he's made it his purpose, it appears, to destroy the state of California. And he started very right. young. You, you gotta, a, a you gotta, you gotta be real Roman. good
2: to earn the nickname Moonbeam.
3: Yeah. What what happens? Yeah, Again, I, are we gonna trust men to govern us? That's crazy. Yep. None of us have the wherewithal I, to to withstand the temptations of wealth and influence. Back to you. I didn't want, mean <laughs> to overrun I, you there, I came I in at,
4: I came in about five to eight minutes late in the beginning and I heard the tail end of you talking about New California. Yeah. So I didn't get the beginning of that, but were you talking about Paul Preston?
3: No, I don't know the shakers and movers. I know some of them because they're my friends, but I haven't had time. I've gone to their house and they've explained it to me and they want me to get involved. Of course, I'm not a Californian as such, but I support such things. I don't know who the shakers and movers are, but they told me there was one man that tried to put this together. I don't know what his name it's is. Paul. It's, Paul, it's Preston. Paul
4: Preston. Okay. Yeah, he has that, a, he has, go ahead. He has a radio program called Agenda 21. Okay. Um, he's very progressive, yet he's still, you know, um, he's sort of mainstream. Uh-huh. Um, he, he, they're fashioning this thing, according to him, uh-huh. to the constitutional, supposedly, way that West Virginia
3: became a state. Correct. That's how I they're understand. moving with it legally. Yeah. Because that's the best precedent available. How else could you do it? I think that's a good idea. Okay. Yeah. And then the the other thing that Paul brings up just recently, because I do listen
4: to his program every morning. Okay. He says that uh, when they turned the power off here lately, uh-huh. Uh-huh. It was, there's 58 counties in California. Yep. Well, 45 of those counties that got turned off were all rural. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I get it. And yep. Yeah, Eddie. Eddie also says that if you go back in history here a little bit, where how this um, legislation and stuff has all changed, and we gone from the land to the city, is that the Earl Warren Court? There was a case called Reynolds versus Sims in the early '60s, uh-huh. and according to him, what uh-huh. happened there is we used to have a senator almost exclusively in the, in all of the United States representing every county, regardless of population. Uh-huh. Reynolds Reynolds versus Sims is also known as one person, one vote. Oh, certainly, so, yeah. That was big stuff back with Warren. Go ahead. So now in California, I, I made this example before but not to you, uh-huh. Um we have, like, uh, uh, now instead of 58 senators, we've got 40, number one, so they've diluted it there. Right. And in the uh, L.A. area, they have something like 20 representing the L.A. area and one senator representing
3: nine counties in Northern California. Yeah, there yeah. you go. And it comes back to this whole idea of uh, numbers. Instead of saying no. Everybody's, every county has a, has a voice. Now they say, well, we're going to give the most power to where the most numbers of votes are. That's what the law of the city is all about. Mm -hmm. Well, where are the votes? San Francisco, Los Angeles, and then the power structure of Sacramento is important. But if you would give, and the Warren, a funny thing, Warren was a Californian. Yeah. Again, Mm -hmm. you'd think, well, and he was high up in government back in the early days of California, not the early days of California. I should say the earlier days from now of California back in the thirties and forties, but he was appointed to the Supreme court and he made it his point to destroy everything, including California. Oddly. Uh, that's right. Well, right. that don't, we do, we are not a government of men. Forget that. I don't care how good they look. Uh, I like what Trump's doing in the main, a lot of what he's doing, but yeah. if we ever get to the point that we're going to say, he is our man and we're going to no, that's where you lose it because law must be what governs. And we and if we're going to have law, then we have to say who's the law giver, of course, James tells us. Now either we have that mindset or we don't. People say, are we a Christian nation? That's a silly question. There had never has been a time in America that every American until the seventies at least, every American just assumed that. It wasn't the question never even came up. Why, well we are whether we whether we were founded that way, we don't know. We just know we're a Christian nation now. Or we founded that way. Let me let me say this. Who founded this country? Well, our Constitution says clearly who founded it. The people of the United States. How about the, these fellows we call the founders? No. You want to argue about whether they were Christian? I don't care. That's not even relevant. Ultimately, as a matter of law and a matter of reality, the people of the United States, the separate state militias, are the ones that ratified the Constitution. What were they? Well, every colony had an established religion, established by, established by taxpayer support and government force. Except maybe three, maybe two, depending upon how you look at it. But that whole idea of the Constitution was not to want not to found a Christian nation. They didn't think about that. Why would that even enter their minds? They just were. They knew that there wasn't anything else here. It was the only kind of religion that anybody knew about was Christianity. And when they ratified the Constitution, they just said, "We want to. If we have a general government, we don't want them interfering in, in religion because we're a Christian. We're all Christian colonies. Clearly, every one of us." I mean, even the progressive Pennsylvanians, they made it, uh, made it uh, lawful in their own constitution or a matter of law that you couldn't even be a witness or take an oath or serve in government unless you're willing to swear to the Christian religion. Vermont's a great example in those early days when we became a country. They just said, if you're not a Protestant, you can't serve in government. You can't serve as a witness, period. You got to be a Protestant. Among many other things, they said. Daryl, that was our uh, perception ourselves. Go ahead.
2: Daryl read that uh, oath to hold any public office out of Delaware back then. That clearly say to that.
3: Oh, they were all. They they were all that way. Nobody was going to put up with anything less. They knew that their power and their strength lie in their Christianity. Ultimately, the laws without Christianity, there is no law of the land. None. If there is no law of the land, then there is no defense of the land, and there is no defense of the law of the land, and we don't get the benefits that come from that, the dooms that God has declared. He said, look, God said they're dooms. Yeah, that's why it says and the, you know, the prophets of God will begin this way sometimes, the doom of whatever. So doom, that's a judgment. Could be a bad one, could be a good one. You've got to read it to find out which one it is. I mean, the old Anglo- English translations, of the Bible even said that. But God said this. Look, if you do do what I tell you, I've laid it all out here in, in detail. You do that, you get blessing. You don't do it, you get my cursing. Which do you want? It's up to you. Just make your choice. Well, That's what is facing Brett, every one of us today. Make your choice. Go ahead. Brett, last
4: week I asked you uh, um, what Bible. I don't think I really got an answer.
3: Um, is King James good enough? Well... Uh, let me answer it the best way I know how, and please be patient with me. That's <laughs> every Bible translation is translated for a certain purpose, and the certain purpose is the is the is the purpose of the person controlling the translation. Who controlled the translation of the King James Bible? Obviously, King James. He's the one that ordered it. And if you want to know what his purposes were, you can go to the internet and read the orders he gave to his translation team. For example, he said this. He said, "I want this Bible." to be memorable, because we have to overcome the Geneva Bible. The reason for the translation of the King James was to overcome the influence of the Geneva. The Geneva Bible was the first Bible in the English-speaking world that gained control, ultimately, the ultimate sway over people. It was the first Bible that became the family Bible, because it was printed small enough, you could carry it when you went to church, you could carry it to your neighbor's house, and it was the Bible that people laid on their table for the first time and read to their families in their own tongue. It was uh, published in quarto size, which means about the size of a large Bible you carry to church, those big Thompson chain chain reference Bibles, for example. People used to say you could use to beat demons over the head. They were so big. Well, but that was small in that day. And so they had this quarto Bible, became the family Bible. King James was appalled. He had been king of Scotland for 37 years before he became king of Britain, Scotland and England, so to speak. And he was raised a Protestant. He was son of Mary, Queen of Scots, who was wacko, law of the city, uh, promiscuous, crazy, out-of-control woman who fought John Knox in Scotland. John Knox was the leader of the Reformation in Scotland. He was a biblicist, and he was one of the translators of the Geneva Bible. And here's the verse King James said himself bothered him more than other any other in the Geneva translation. And the note that went with it, because the Geneva Bible, not only it was it all the things I said before, it was the first Bible to divide the Bible into verses. The drafter of Magna Carta, Stephen Langton, had divided the Bible into chapters. He's the one that gave us our chapter divisions of the Bible. But then when the Geneva Bible was published, then it added division of verses. Well, there was a verse there. And it was about the story when the sons of Israel came out of Egypt. And uh, it said there, of course, the the emperor of Egypt, called Pharaoh, ordered the murder of every boy child that was born. And he gave his order to the midwives. They were obviously uh, bureaucrats of sorts. Well, the midwives, of which there were probably many, but they're mentioned there, the leaders of the midwives. He gave them orders, every boy that comes out, murder him, kill him. We can't afford to have any more of these Hebrews. They'll get. They're more numerous than us now. So we're talking here about infanticide. But the midwives, it says in the Bible, did not do that. They disobeyed Pharaoh. And then a note was put at the bottom emphasizing that. It was a study Bible with notes. And King James I hated that. He said, this note gives people the impression they can disobey the king. I'm not going to have that. We have to overcome that Geneva Bible, which was printed in Geneva among the exiles that were over there. It was translated among the exiles that were over there to keep their heads from getting chopped off. Well, then they got, there was a large English congregation that met in Geneva every Sunday because there were so many exiles. The Geneva Bible was published. It came to England. It overcame everything. So the King James Bible was translated to overcome the influence of the Geneva Bible, and King James was a divine right of kingers. That means, uh, according to the law of the city, he said he answered to no man except uh, to God alone, and no one could challenge him. And every member of his translation team had to swear to that truth. Now, what does that tell you about the King James Bible? It tells you the purpose of it was to maintain the power of the king. So all high church words, not all of them, but many of them were retained. As one fellow said about the King James, he said a lot of those words they kept, the the church kept those words in the Bible because those words kept them. For example, the word bishop. That word bishop is presbytos. The Presbyterian church uh, received that word for their name because they were a church of government, of elder rule. Presbytos in the Greek tongue means elder or eldership, a rule by a plurality of elders. That's what the Bible says we're supposed to do. Well, that's not what King James wanted. He was the pope in England, as was Henry VIII before him. He was the head of the church. If I say elders, that wouldn't tend to support my rule of the church. So I want you to translate bishops. You see, there was even before that a bishop's Bible. So that's why the King James was translated. What is the value of the King James? That's the negative things about it. That doesn't mean it's not worthwhile. That does not mean it's not good. The, the King James Bible is the most eloquent, beautiful, balanced, in, in literary style, and words of all English translations of the Bible. Why? Because King James said, I want you to put phrases in this book that make it memorable, make it stick in people's minds, because if we don't do that, we're never going to overcome the Geneva Bible. And even after the King James was published in 1611, it was 50 years before it even began to overcome the influence of the Geneva Bible. But when that happened, of course, it happened because of the memorability, the beauty of it. It took time, and it happened because of taxpayer support. The government pushed it. Go ahead. Brent, I have a question. Um, Wasn't the
4: Geneva Bible in print for 50 years before the King James?
3: Yes, that's the point I was making. That's right. That's good. Uh Yeah, it was in print, and the King James, it took 50 years, about, before the King James began to get any traction against it. And the only way it could do that was because the government, was paying for this continued printing of this Bible that wasn't selling. They kept trying, but with government backing. In other words, take the, the, the people of England and their tax money and promote what the government wants to promote, and that's what they did. And that's how the King James gained. Listen, when people came to America, the pilgrims, not only did they not bring the King James Bible, which was available to them, they refused to touch it. They wouldn't bring it. They said, this is a Bible about the divine right of kings. This is not a Bible that we want. And so they carried the Geneva Bible to the New World. That was a, that's an important consideration. Of course, again, in the English-speaking world, which included America, the King James gained traction, again, because of its beauty. So it is a, a great Bible. When I was growing up, as a practical matter, there were others out there. We didn't know about them. We had the King James. And so when people begin a Bible verse in the King James, I usually can finish it. It is memorable. It is beautiful. It is the zenith. It represents the zenith of the development of the, of the English tongue. It, that's our expression of it. It's the only classic piece of literature ever in English produced by a committee. That's a <laughs> noteworthy uh, accomplishment right there. So that's the value of the English Bible. Um, I say this, if you want just beautiful eloquence, of course, take the, English Bi- the uh, King James Bible. But the King James Bible is not accurate. That is translated. That beauty, that elegance, that balance uh, in the English tongue is done at the expense of of absolute accuracy. Uh, what's the most accurate Bible you can buy that's readable, really readable, really easy? Uh, that would probably be, and I think everybody agrees about this, the most literal Bible you can get that's well known is the New American Standard Bible. Right. But the King Jamers don't like the New American Standard because it uses a different set of manuscripts. There are two traditions of manuscripts of the New Testament, the Old Testament. That's all the same fundamentally, the Masoretic text. The New Testament is from two families of manuscripts. One's called the majority tradition. The other one is called the minority tradition. So the majority tradition, most of all the almost 6,000 manuscripts we have the New Testament, and that's an overwhelming amount of manuscripts for an ancient writing. The only thing that even comes close, no, it doesn't come close, but the one that comes in second would be the Iliad of Homer, which was 800 years before Christ, 800 years B.C., and there are only 600 manuscripts of that one. And they are woefully divergent. They don't agree that much. But here we have 6, 000, almost 6,000 manuscripts that have hardly any divergence of all, but still there is some divergence, a little bit, with things that don't really matter much. Well, the King James say, no, 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 you're basing the Bible on the wrong manuscript tradition. We go with a majority of all transcripts. manuscripts, Handwritten manuscript means handwritten copies. But the majority of all those manuscripts occurs after the 8th, 7th, or 8th, or 9th century during that time and and forward. The minority tradition, they they rest more on the older manuscripts that we know about. Well, most of the older manuscripts come out of Egypt. Why? Well, it's, it's dry down in Egypt, and so the manuscripts preserved longer down there. And the ones that have been found are very ancient and very complete. Um, that's it just in general, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the history of the two, but so the King James is based upon the TR the Textus Receptus, as they called it of Erasmus. Why is that? Well, that's all they had. The King James Bible was translated from a half a dozen, about a half a dozen manuscripts. The new translations today are uh, resource over, or, uh, just under 6,000 manuscripts of the new testament but the king jamers say the tr of those six manuscripts there weren't weren't enough to even translate the whole new testament by the time erasmus got to the last book of the bible revelation the last 12 verses the leaf off the manuscript he had had decayed and and it was gone so he had to back translate from latin into greek to make a, a greek new testament (laughs) and he introduced, by the way, a dozen new variations because you can't make it perfect in a translation. So, uh, the Textus receptus is good and we're thankful to God and the men that put all that together, but still there is a veritable embarrassment of riches that have been discovered since then. The other thing about the King James that I like to mention one more thing, Roger, I know you've got a comment and I want to hear it, but one more thing. In the Old Testament, the King James translators relied on the tradition of the rabbis and the Jews of Europe because they didn't know Hebrew. They had well, not been able to study it that long, and that has caused a lot of problems that I could talk about, but I don't. I don't le- want to take time to get into too many details. Go the, ahead, Roger.
2: Eleven of the Pharisees. Yeah, oh, and
3: one of them is. is- Oh yeah, go ahead, Roger. I'm all fired up. Go ahead, Samuel. In the
2: uh, when the King King James, and I get this information from a series six hours long that Pastor Pete Peters did that I heard called the King James Only Version, and it goes to what you're looking for if you want to go to that resource. That that's an excellent uh, uh, listen, and some of the points he brought out were that when the King James version was finished, the in the first version there was a Page at the front of the Bible by the translators that said there are over 500 mistranslations in this, and it's not our fault.
3: The King James yeah. were clear. That's right. They were clear. And you read their preface. They said, look, we've done what we can do, but there will be more manuscripts if there are errors, you know, so they admit that it's not perfect. But I want to add this, Roger, before I quit, and it would be a of me not to add it. If you want a, a raw translation of the Bible, raw, R-A-W, then get the translation of yours truly. That's what I've tried to do. Tried to make it as raw as it is in the original text. Well, that would include also being literal. And uh, you can get that translation on Amazon.com, and uh, it's called The Good Book, A Common Lawyer Translates and Annotates the Bible from the Original Tongues. Um, I'm trying to make it more visible. I did this translation for myself. I started almost 40 years ago. I wanted to know, I wanted to look at an English word and know, when I saw that English word, know what Greek or Hebrew word it was uh, I was translating And I would have an English, and then I put all my notes in it that I thought were important or over almost 15,000 footnotes and 112 appendices in the back of it. But I call it toward a raw translation because I don't want to cook the book. I want to deliver it up just the way it was given to me and the way I got it from the original tongues. So I would uh, encourage you to consider that. I've got it in the, it's publishable now, you can get it with the notes and it's very long that way. But now I'm trying to get it so it's available and it is available if you email me and you just want the translation itself without the notes, which would get it down to one volume, then, uh, we can do that. I just got word Roger three days ago from my printer yes. that, that they now can print it for me on onion skin paper. That's oh. going to make a big difference because, you see, there's two kinds of printing. There's offset printing, which means the big presses that have one continual massive sheet of paper running through the press, and then they cut it up afterwards. And it keeps the paper has to be kept taunt as they pull it through. And the reason is when it's that thin, you can't put it in a copy machine sheet by sheet. It'll jam up because it tends to float and all well, they've been working for years trying to develop a copy machine that would print one page at a, at a time of this light paper that wouldn't jam up. And now I understand my printer that they've got a man that's been working on it. He thinks he's got a machine that'll do it, oh, and man. they've been printing books with this thin paper. Well, that's going to make my Bible much more affordable because I'm it's in four volumes of about 800 pages apiece now. But if I can wow. get that down to two volumes or get rid of the notes get it to, or a lot of the notes and get it to one volume, that's going to make a big difference. Sure me. So we're back to technology being important. Go ahead.
2: Yes, it is very important. Let me just add one other thing for Samuel and the audience. Uh, Many people, and myself, this is a Bible that I brought with me down here that I have, is uh, on top of the digital version Brent sent me, Uh, his is a, a guy named Farrar Fenton. Have you heard us talk about that, Samuel, about him?
4: Yes, I have, but I really don't have a lot of recall on it.
2: Well, Ferrar Fenton was an Englishman, F-E-R-R-A-R-F-E-N-T-O-N, exactly like it's spelled, who made it his, like, like Brent has, his life's work. And his big contention was that the English were getting away from uh, God because they couldn't understand the language in the King James Version. But Now, there are, my understanding, I think, Brent, you told us this one day, there's still a few places over there that speak that English, but they're very isolated, okay? Oh, yeah, there's
3: even... uh, So,
2: Farrar, Fenton thought that was the problem, and he took upon himself, and he was a very successful businessman in about five different businesses. He was an Oxford graduate and spent his entire life translating it from the original Greek to the point... And one of the reasons it took him so long, this is in the eight, late 1800s to the turn of last century, okay? And he, he had every Greek scholar in the world, and when he would translate, and he got to a point where the word he couldn't uh, really put his finger on a translation, he would write a letter to every one of those people wherever they were in the world. Now, this is in the 1800s. And he would not proceed until he got every answer back. Now, my personal experience with it is this. I heard about it. I bought a copy. I like it. And I liked it from my, and I heard about it on Pastor Peter's show. Okay. And um, our pastor is a guy named James Bruggeman. I imagine Brent's heard of him. Uh, He had a circuit out of, he lives in Asheville, North Carolina, and he traveled a little circuit. So he'd be in Atlanta once a month. And myself and another guy in our group, and there'd be 30 to 40 people that would attend the services, had for our Fenton Bibles. Now, James Bruggeman is much like Brent in the fact that, by the way, his, uh, his website is StoneKingdomMinistries.org if you want to uh, tap into James's work and effort. But uh, regardless, uh, this other fellow and I had for our Fenton Bibles. And James uh, Bruggeman was much like Brent in the fact he has all of this uh, knowledge of, of Hebrew and Greek and and all, all those languages. And so whenever he'd come to give his services, and there'd be a word that he had trouble with. And I remember one particularly, Brent, is Gehenna, okay? Uh-huh. And, yeah. and this example, and he'd stop and he'd say, now... At this point, Gehenna has several different translations and ways that it's used, et cetera, et cetera. And every time that we ever got to one of those situations, Farrar Fenton always had the right translation. And the guy's name that had the other version of the other book was named Arden. Really nice guy, Arden Kennard, but a really good guy. And Arden and I would look at each other across the room and just, like, smile. Because, I mean, there's never one time that he wasn't right. In those Bruggeman examples is what I'm giving you. So, anyway, I'd say at least look look at it. You know, you can download it free on the Internet. So that's just what I wanted to add. Daryl's joined us. I know he's chomping, but let me make sure Brent didn't have anything to wrap this up before we turn it over to him.
3: No, I decided to take a breather, and, and I want to hear what Daryl's got to say, and okay. I'll rest. Go ahead. All
2: right. Well, our good buddy Daryl's joined us Didn't yeah. talked to you very much this week, man. Good to hear from you. I figured you'd been working.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's been busy here. Uh, good to hear, everybody. Brent, uh, Samuel, Roger, Chris. Um, so uh, I, I have your original Bible, Brent. Uh, I try to buy and it seems like I buy a new Bible every year. Uh, yeah. I guess, I guess I'm up to about six of them now. <laughs> and, uh, yours is six inches tall and seven volumes. <clears throat> and, uh, I have to put it on a special shelf that's been reinforced.
3: <laughs> uh, I'll wait a minute right and you've got the machinery and the machinery and the, and the tools to build a special with steel braces. In there. Yeah. Okay.
1: Uh, but, uh, no, it, it, it's, it's all, it's, I'm looking at it right now. It's sitting there right with your uh, common law book and uh, the workbook too. So, uh, anyway, um, uh I have the I have the Geneva. I've got at least a half a dozen King James around here. Um uh, I ordered a uh a I have the Greek Orthodox and uh uh <clears throat> my next one I'm gonna order from uh Michael Hoffman is uh it's the uh the Reams. Fifteen eighty two Reams New Testament. I don't have that. I was just curious. But I recall some scripture that says in Deuteronomy four two, mm-hmm. you shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take anything from it. Uh, there's other references to that, too, in Psalms and in Proverbs. But uh, uh, I, as uh, the, one of the reasons I buy all these different Bibles, is. Uh, uh, I sort of go back to that. I go, well, I see a lot of and subtracting here. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so I, I find that real interesting. And, uh, <clears throat> on this other thing you were talking about earlier, if you don't mind, uh, I, I'm pretty much in agreement with your perspective on land and land rights. Um, but I, I have a question concerning that, uh, how do you suppose we can get our rights back? <laughs> yeah.
3: If, uh, there has to, well, how are we we do my, about getting them back? <laughs> my studied opinion is that it, would, it has to be a groundswell. The politicians, the politicians are not leaders. And even the founders were not leaders in many senses. They were following the sensibilities of the people they had to. All, all people in the, those kind of positions follow the sensibilities of the people. Whether they admit it, whether they even understand it or not, because they have no power, no sway, no influence unless they satisfy them. And that's the way God meant it. And I'd like to use the example of Moses. Moses was constantly upset at Israel. He was a leader, of course. And, and uh, his God would tell him, I'm going to wipe these people back. Stand back, Moses. I don't want you to get hurt. I'm just going to uh, wipe them slick from the ground. And he would then go into prayer intercessory and say, oh, Lord, let me get between you and them. And I, I want to say to you, just, just wait just a minute. No, don't do that. Remember your covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob for their sake. And then he would pray. And one time he got to pray in that way because God was upset with the people, the lawgiver himself here. And, and uh, he was telling Moses things that made Moses scared. I don't remember all the details, but finally Moses said, I don't think you get a God. He said there are over 600,000 armed men in the camp. Over 600,000? Well, yeah, that would have been the number, the precise number, was uh, when they began out of Egypt was uh, 603,550, ultimately, then minus two, then they were numbered again, it was just over 600,000. He was afraid of the people. Moses was afraid of the people. That's the way God wanted it. That's why we... Our Constitution of the United States acknowledges the militia of the several states. This, these are biblical ideas, and it's part of who we are. And without that, if the, those politicians are not afraid of us, then we got a problem. And you see bumper stickers that say things like that now, and I'm glad that people are coming around to acknowledge that. That's the way our God wants our government. We are not a government of men. We are a government of law and ultimately the militia and the jury. The jury is the militia. The militia is itself. They're the ones that have the final word among men about right and wrong in individual instances from whose decision there is no meaningful appeal. How do we get that back? There has to be a resurgence. And this is what is what happened when during our separation from Britain. There was a resurgence of interest in the law of the land of the William Blackstone's commentaries, which remember were the ones that said in the first volume that uh, the common law did not apply in the American colonies. (laughs) But even though it said that it said a lot of things about our common law and that's what the people in America wanted to grab hold of. There were 3 million souls about best numbers we can get 3 million white folk. I should say that's not, that's discounting the red man and the black man, but about 3 million white folk in the American colonies When we separated from Britain, there were about 8 million people lived in England, but Blackstone's commentary sold by far and away many more copies by many times in the American colonies than they did in England. And we have the figures because we know from the records of the publishers that shipped them over, who ordered them and how many were distributed. We have those records. If you go to that book, uh, Excellence of the Common Law, I have a long section there about Blackstone's commentaries and how many were sold and uh, right down to the publishers. I think I've got that in there. May, maybe that's in a, an appendices. I don't, appendix. I don't remember. But people were interested in our common law in the American colonies mm. to a far greater multiplication of degree than they were in england and once they had that sensibility of the law of the land they said wait a minute now why did they have that sensibility i'm not sure of all the reasons i think a lot of it had to do with the scottish enlightenment and the influence of john john locke a puritan by the way his father was a puritan he was educated under the greatest of puritans john owen and he had that sense of that he was a great fan of the scottish enlightenment the scottish enlightenment said this ultimately they said okay the bible has authority uh, we've established that during the Reformation, during the days of John Knox. Now we say, what about the laws of nature around us? Isn't that God's revelation of his will? The way things are and they will not change? We're talking about the law of physics, we call it today. They used to call it natural philosophy. Just the way things are in the relationship between men and men, things and things, and men and things. Blackstone talks about, in the be- about that in the beginning of his commentaries. What about that? They became interested in the law of the land, the way it really works. The nexus that takes the written revelation of god's will and makes it practical down here where the rubber meets the road people wanted that and if we have that groundswell now of that if it happens when it happens at the behest behest of the lawgiver himself and that's the way those kind of things happen That we can
2: have that it's already happening to some extent on a number Uh of different levels and you even hear all these people we need to return to the rule of law well they don't understand what's going on the way that we do here, okay? They don't understand what they're saying, really. Uh, they think if you just get some of the corruption out of this established administrative merchant law, it'll be back all right. But that's not what we're really talking about. We're talking about returning to this, the common law. And I remember John saying, attributing a quote, and I don't know the quote exactly, but the concept will come across, from King George the Third that got so aggravated because they couldn't pull anything over on the colonists because his comment, they know the law too well.
3: Uh-huh. That's right. And if you know the law, it scares people. If you know the true law, why don't you say law? No, not just any law, the true law. And the only law we have in America that's fundamental, and we say it in our organic document called the Declaration of 76, is the laws of nature, two volumes, the laws of nature unwritten in the nature of creation and the laws of nature's God written in the Bible. How do I know it means that? Because Blackstone, who wrote 11 years before our Declaration of 76 in his commentaries. That's what he says it means. Everybody knew that at that time. The phrase came out of the Scottish Enlightenment, the laws of nature, unwritten in nature. Is, is it any accident that even the, the end of the Scottish Enlightenment in Scotland, the inventor of television was a Scotsman back in the 1920s? That was the tail end, the fizzling out of the Scottish Enlightenment that came from Scotland, overtook all of the island of Britain. It wasn't, it's called the Scottish Enlightenment, but all of Britain and uh, in, in, in embraced it, and then it came to America. America is the national outworking for the first time and the only time in the history of mankind of that thing we call the Scottish Enlightenment. The Scottish Enlightenment gave us the idea of the high school. Now, I didn't say the government high school. I said high school. The Scottish Enlightenment gave us the idea of night school for adults. The Scottish Enlightenment gave us the whole idea. This is crazy. They gave us the idea that doctors ought to have direct contact with their patients and talk to them. The Scotsmen were with Scotsmen in those days of the Scottish enlightenment were not allowed to go to oxford because they were racist in england they hated the scotsmen they wouldn't let them into the medical school at oxford and cambridge they said okay we'll form our own medical schools but the english see they were too uppity at that at that time to say that a doctor could talk to his patient. No, the patients were below him. They would send people out to interview the patients. They'd bring them back the information, and they would tell the other people what to do to the patients. And the Scotsman said, "That's no, no, (laughs) no. That's the class system that developed, you see, in England. And the Scotsman said, the the doctor needs to talk to the patient so he knows. Well, see, the the law was the same thing. And yet in England today, the, the solicitor talks to the client. The barrister then receives a written report of what the client said he reads it it's called the brief and then he decides how he wants to take the case and what he wants to do that's still the way uh, until very recently unless it's changed there are two classes of lawyers in england and it came down to the same thing this class of people the barristers were too high and mighty to talk to the the client they wouldn't waste their time doing that time doing that well the doctor the scottish enlightenment though changed all of that mentality and that's why we are more personal in America. Like say in America, we don't have to be introduced to people before we talk to them. I've been up in Canada and those poor people up there won't talk to you until you've been properly introduced. Well, that's some of that, that English coming through. See, yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> go ahead. Go ahead. I remember there going we'll, through Canada uh,
2: as a kid, going to Alaska and back. Yeah. And yeah. you know, my mother did downright Southern, my daddy too. Yeah. And yeah, get, we we yeah. went up through Minnesota the first time on the way up, and we'd get up there around Lake of the Woods in that part of Ontario, and yeah. we'd stop to eat and say, could we have a glass of iced tea? And they'd bring you a glass of ice and a little cup of hot tea over on the side. Yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well, they're still English to that degree. You're right. I get it. I'm not complaining about them. I like yeah. them for neighbors, don't you? Yep. As a matter of fact, people. I like all of them I've ever met very yeah. much. The, yeah. the- Go ahead.
2: Yeah, out and about. Hey, Darrell, what were you going to say?
1: Well, uh, just, uh, just to kind of respond to what Brent was talking about there and, uh, some previous comments. Um, you, you know, uh, I get people that I talk to and this word law will come up once in a while and, uh, I listen to them and then I, my comment back to them, my rebuttal is usually something along the lines of this. Well, uh, I don't believe you're competent to obey that law. And I get this really funny look. I'll bet. And I I, I challenge their competency as to whether or not they're going to obey a law. And I said, you need to ask yourself these two questions to determine whether you're competent. Whose law is it and what kind? And I said, if you can't answer that, then I said, why are you obeying it? Mm-hmm. Well, th- this puts the onus on them. To uh, uh, this usually shuts down the conversation. By the way, and uh, a
2: non-starter.
1: But but the onus goes back on them that they they have they have a the duty to be responsible to understand, uh, not just to throw this word around as a uh, as a dodge, as a cop out, as a uh, an excuse. Uh, well, well, tell me whose law it is and what kind. And, and they can't can it. They can't do it. No. Okay. So, uh, this, uh, I, I mean, let's, let's give. I just want to pull this back to basics a little bit. We talk about law you, and you brought the word up and, and I, I, I liked how you, uh, you know, delineated things, uh, and, uh, you, you know, I, I talk to people that are in uh, I know a woman who does, um, uh, collections, <laughs> she calls people up and harasses them for a, for an agency. And, uh, she says, well, it's the law of the land. And I says, well, you're, you, you're, incompetent. Yeah. You, 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 you're not, you're not qualified to talk on this. Okay. You just, you just proved that you're illiterate. Uh, well, she was offended, uh, which didn't bother me any. Uh, but uh, we have people that have uh, we have people that are modifying their belief systems to adapt it to their behavior, and
2: there's a, uh, there's a term. Daryl, there's a term for it.: Technical yeah. illiteracy.
0: Yeah, well, and, and all of us
1: in some area or are, not are, and I, I recognize that. No. Functionally,
2: but, functionally uh, illiterate is what I want to say. I'm sorry. Yeah, well, it,
1: the, those, well, both of those apply. Both of those apply. Uh, you, you're technically illiterate to talk about aviation.
2: I sure am. Okay.
1: Uh, uh, and uh, I'm technically illiterate to talk about, uh, you know, Dozens of things. <laughs> okay, yeah. and and so I, I think that I think uh, that uh, I've stated the obvious here, but people should uh, take the time and parse and struggle with what Brent's talking about to understand what this thing called common law really is, yep. and and why it's important to you. Yep. Uh, so that you can identify. Well, whose law is this and, and what, and, and how it applies to you? What kind of, how does it apply to you? And uh, so that's, that's what I wanted to throw out there on that.
2: Well, thanks for putting that in. Well, We're getting towards the end. Yeah. Brent, you got a response to that?
3: No, yeah, well, I, of course, I, I'm, I'm glad he brought it up for this reason. This, this question What is the common law? Do you really know what what it is? You live in a common law country. You're a privileged person. Mm -hmm. Do do you know what the common law is? And people will will inevitably say, well, I know what common law marriage is. I think I know (laughs) what that is. Well, that really has very little to do with it. (laughs) But that's the thing that comes into everybody's minds that I talk to when I bring up the common law. But the thing about the common law, they want to talk about the common law like people want to talk about the Bible. I believe the Bible. Oh, you do. Okay. That's nice. You do. Why? Why do you believe the Bible? Do you have reasons for it? Do you have any evidence to make you think that the Bible's true? Well, by the way, there is plenty of evidence to make you think that. It's overwhelming. And if you're persuadable, you'll believe that. But what about, oh, I believe the Constitution, too. Oh, okay. Why? For what reason? I mean, if you can't articulate, our God, I'm quoting John Gerstner here. John Gerstner's gone now. But he used to say this, and I say it softly and respectfully, as he, I think, tried to. He said he would say this, God does not appreciate the worship of fools. Um, nobody wants to be patronized by people who are just silly. I, I like to use the word silly because that has a distinct meaning in our English tongue. Uh, another word would be "dollards," which is related to the word stupid. Stupid is not a, always an well, if I use it in the technical sense, it means thick and slow. I don't want to be thick and slow. I try not to be. I know I am in many ways, but none of us, we all should be striving toward Sharpness. What is our common law? Well, let me just throw this out, and I hope you have uh, this piques your interest to get the book. Comparative law text, 958 pages, uh, by yours truly, called Excellence of the Common Law. It compares and contrasts the law of the land with the law of the city. That would be a good place to start. And then the, the translation of the Bible that Daryl was so nice to mention. Thank you, Daryl. But the translation of the Bible that we've done, the winterized version, as some people call it, is an attempt to take that 958 pages of fundamental material And put it in the notes of the Bible and show how the Bible undergirds the common law. The common law undergirds the Bible. What is the common law? Fundamentally, it is not a list of laws. Not a list of laws. It is a way of life. It is a course or courses of process. depending Due process, we call it. The other word for due process. Magna Carta. Lex Terra, law of the land, or land law. It's the way God. God does not say do this, don't do that. that. He says that, but that's not what the stress of His point of view is. His point of view is how things are done. The way Jesus Christ did not say I'm a I'm a list of laws. He said I am the way. John fourteen six. Go ahead.
2: In fact, didn't it, the common law only have eight really writs?
3: Yeah. But we, in the, in, as it played out in England, yeah, and for the courts, I see what you're saying. So simplicity
2: right. there. Simplicity. Commonlawyer.com is how you get more of this Thanks. splendid gentleman, Brent Winters, who's kind enough to be with us every Friday. Brent, go enjoy the uh, conference, the Red Pill guys. Uh, Jim Ram is next. I seldom remember to say that. Have a good weekend. Big football weekend. We'll see you Monday, see what happens. And to do it all over again next week. So, I hope everybody got something out of today's really, really good show and something you can ruminate on over the weekend. We'll see you Monday from beautiful Ecuador. Adios and hasta la wega. Have a good one, folks.
0: Thank you, Roger. Hasta la
2: Sure appreciate you being there.
0: the squad.